What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. What's on your mind, Adam? Papa wears diapers and he keeps them in an outhouse, and Nana walks around at night without her clothes, and Papa thinks strangers are following him. You spent the weekend with Michael Phillips again, didn't you? I'm worried about him, Josh. You're not alone. A clip there from The Visit, the new one from M. Night Shyamalan, a director badly in need of a comeback. Is his low-budget entry in the found-footage genre the movie to do it? Our review and the top five movie house guests. Plus Massacre Theater and more. You know, I thought I was the only one who called Michael Pop-Pop. Ahead on Film Spotting. Film Spotting is brought to you by Movie, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. A few of the titles available currently over at Movie are The Wayward Cloud and I Don't Want to Sleep Alone, films from filmmaker Sai Ming Liang, a filmmaker, Josh, that we are badly in need of learning more about. And Oslo, August 31, this is a film from Joachim Trier that was one of my favorite films of 2012. Highly, highly recommended. Every day, movies curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile app, you can download films to watch offline. Listeners of Film Spotting can try movie free for a month. Just go to movie.com slash filmspotting to redeem now. That's mubi.com slash film spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting. You know, things took a weird turn when Josh and I prepared for this week's top five by having a sleepover. Hey, I warned you that I snored. (laughs) You did. Our top five movie house guests and more later in the show. But first, in M. Night Shyamalan's The Visit, a trip to Grandma's house takes a turn for the Brothers Grimm. My Adam, I never realized what big teeth you have. Every day it's a getting close. Are you holding my camera properly? Swerve, girl. Uh, Stop, both of you! Hi, Mom. My parents asked if their grandchildren could visit them for a week. Here we are. This is where our mom grew up. I've wanted to spend time with you for so long. Miss you guys! Mom, we're having a great time. I have not seen your Nana this happy in years. <laughs> Bedtime here is 9.30. It's probably best you two shouldn't come out of your room after that. See you in the morning. 9.30? 9.30. What is that? It's 10.47. We think there's someone outside the door. As fun as I found it to be, Adam, I don't know if we can really call the visit a return to form for writer-director M. Night Shyamalan. True like his best work, which I'd say is Signs and The Sixth Sense, this is a thriller. But it's also an entry in the found footage genre in which everything on screen consists of images captured by a character's camera. So the visit has this off-the-cuff aesthetic that's far removed from the formal sense of control that once made Shyamalan such a compelling filmmaker. Where does this found footage come from? The movie centers on Becca and Tyler, played by Olivia DeYoung and Ed Oxenbold. They're siblings who are spending a week with their grandparents in rural Pennsylvania. 
Becca is a budding documentary filmmaker. She's hoping to create something out of this trip. So she always has a camera in hand. She's also exceptionally precocious. So there's a lot of talk from her about visual attention, mise-en-scene, and other cinematic principles. We'll get to the obvious question. Is Shyamalan back? But what I'm really curious to hear from you in particular, Adam, since, you know, you're Mr. Meta, Hmm. is if all this in-movie movie talk added to the experience of the visit. Was it a clever way of filtering this horror story? Did you see it in any way as Shyamalan offering a self-commentary on the trajectory and style of his career? Or is it a desperate gimmick from someone whose career is still on the wrong track? It's funny you mentioned the idea of self-commentary because anytime you have a main character who's a filmmaker and you have someone who we know through his other films and interviews and such that Shyamalan is very much a film lover, you get that sense that he might be interjecting some of his own thoughts and little in-jokes throughout the dialogue. And there is even one moment where I didn't write down the exact line, but the girl's arguing with her brother about the look of the film. And she basically says something like, oh, nobody cares. Nobody cares about that. And it's the same kind of point that he raised or she raises that people have raised about his films before. So there is that element there maybe a little bit. Overall, I think the found footage approach does work. And I think that's because for me, and we'll talk about this maybe a little bit more as we get into the review, I think the movie is largely about storytelling. I'll give you one little hint of that. There is that line we hear from Becca about halfway through the movie about her mother. She says, my mom's the kind of woman who always says things just don't work out for me. And then she goes and does something to make things not work out for her. So that sense of kind of having a narrative to your life and it being a self-fulfilling prophecy is an element of this film. And I think the formal approach heightens that. I think it also works for Shyamalan because he does, as you pointed out quite cleverly, have his protagonist be a documentarian. Precocious, yes, hyper-intelligent, hyper-articulate. She does have a working knowledge of form, and she throws out those phrases like mise-en-scene. So that allows Shyamalan to craft this film almost as meticulously as his other films. I think I would disagree with you a little bit in the sense that, yes, of course, it's inevitably a little bit more off the cuff because we are hyper aware that someone is filming and it's not as maybe grandiose or as stately as some of his other compositions in some of his other films. But that said, it still feels very, very controlled and very crafted to me. And it doesn't look at all like the found footage flicks I flick by late at night on TV. And that's all I can say. I can't compare it to other found footage movies. I don't think I've seen one. I can't think of one found footage movie. You've seen the Blair Witch Project. Okay, other than that. You're right. Other than the Blair Witch. And that's a good counterpoint, right? Where it's, of course, a little bit more gritty and a little bit more spontaneous and feels more like you truly did stumble across someone's footage. You don't really get that sense with the visit. And the effect of all that craft and the combination of the tension that this movie exudes And the point of view of it, it did give me an experience, Josh, that I haven't had since I walked out of Gone Girl. And let's be clear, I like Gone Girl a whole lot more than I like The Visit. But because of the way Shyamalan compels you to question everything you see in the frame, or probe everything you see anyway, I was constantly looking out the corners of the frames, searching for maybe, yes, what might jump out at me, what might scare me. But You're also just looking for clues. You're looking for some nuggets of truth. You might just be looking at an empty room or you're looking at a character talking. Because there's a question hovering over this whole picture. What's wrong with Graham and Grandpa? Yeah, so because of the question hanging over it and because of that visual style and that first person 
point of view and the camera pointing at the things that the girl wants to investigate, that has us looking for those clues. And we turn into detectives ourselves. And so I walked out of this movie, true story, not exaggerating at all. I walked out of this movie. I walked down the escalator and I noticed a woman sweeping by the door. And something about it just didn't seem right. She wasn't even an older woman like the characters in this movie. But I was just like, why is she sweeping at 7.30 at night by a door that doesn't seem dirty? Seems odd. At all. And then I'm walking down the street to go get some food. And someone you see on the street a million times, and you'd never think anything of it. Here it startled me when a guy was on a Bluetooth, and he was talking kind of loud and laughing. It seemed a little bit weird to me. I go into the restaurant wait, to wait, get some food. You didn't go after that guy like Pop Pop does I did, on the guy who in the thinks street, he's staring right? at him. Yeah, following him. I didn't. Okay, thank God. I wasn't that deranged <laughs> by the movie. I go into the restaurant. I'm standing in line. I walk in. I swear to you. And there's a woman standing in front of me who is talking to herself and then proceeds to start talking to me a bunch of nonsense and Eventually she left, but I really thought I had somehow walked into this movie all of a sudden. So I will give Shyamalan points for putting me in that headspace throughout the course of this film. I wasn't even aware of it until I walked out. I give him a lot of points for other elements, too. But wouldn't you know it? And here I'll shut up and let you jump in, Josh. Wouldn't you know it? when the movie's over, I couldn't help but want to pat him on the back and punch him in the face at the same time? I think I know why. I think we'll get to that. But I'm glad it worked overall for you. I, it's, it certainly did for me as a thriller. And you're right talking about the found footage. It, it's, it's so functional for horror pictures. And Becca even mentions that too, how she's emphasizing what's beyond the frame. Mm-hmm. And that's how you experienced it. And it certainly works on that level. I agree that found footage movies can be as deliberately controlled as any other more obviously formal Film. I happen to like the genre quite a bit. I think Blair Witch is a masterpiece precisely because it feels so visceral and real and found, but you know it's crafted to an inch of its life. I think here, if the visit doesn't quite live up to that level, it's because the camera angles and so forth are contrived in ways that pull us out of that experience here and there. Not in the most important elements or moments so the game of hide and seek underneath the porch that works yeah and it works scary. largely because i got shivers we don't know where the figure is going to come from next mm-hmm. not because the director is purposefully placing his camera somewhere which is a level of remove in a horror movie where we're conscious that we're watching a movie but because becca's dropped her camera yeah and we hear her and we can't see where she is or where the approaching figure is. So I think there are some very effective scenes in that manner in this film. And it was it was fun to see Shyamalan working in that sort of vein again, even though he's doing it in a slightly different form. The question I'm still pondering is the one I asked you in terms of the self-commentary here, because you're right. This is a really thoughtful guy who's thought about the craft of filmmaking, but also in his interviews about his own stature as a filmmaker. You know, this is something you know is on his mind. It's been on his mind since some of his earlier films, certainly the bigger hits. And so I do wonder if he's deflating somehow his own reputation as this formalist. I mean, this is a guy who was compared to Spielberg after The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable and Signs in terms of control of what's on the screen. And I wonder if it could go two ways. Is this a really clever way of saying, okay, you're waiting for that again for me to return to that? Here's something totally different that, though still controlled, looks like it's chaotic. Hmm. Or is this a guy just running to a form 
that, yes, can be controlled, but also gives you a heck of a lot of wiggle room when you do work with found footage because you're kind of in this box and people will maybe be forgiving that. We're watching a found footage movie, so that's why the camera is on the mantelpiece. One thing that I noticed, it's a very different angle when we return to it later that night than it was before. And I think those are the sort of gaps or inconsistencies that Hmm. a really good found footage movie would not have. And this one does, and that pulls me out of the whole experience. So I don't have an answer for my own question. It's one of the things I'm still thinking about. It's also one of the things that maybe lets me say, welcome back, Shyamalan. Right. But, you know, I'm still waiting for something as good as those earlier films. I don't have an answer, a good answer to your question either. It's something I'd have to ponder a little bit longer myself. I can tell you this. This is the best answer I can attempt in terms of him recapturing a form, if that's even what he's after. The movie does feel like, and that's the best I can give you right now. That's the best way I can articulate it, having just walked out of it. I did just come from the movie and haven't had a chance to really think about it. But it feels like The Sixth Sense. Some of the conversation scenes, the same way there's this tension between the kids and the mother, underlying tension that's there. It's more blatant in something like The Sixth Sense with Tony Collette, but still, I got that same dynamic. There are scenes on a train in this movie that feel just like the scenes on a train in Unbreakable. And of course, just the secrets, the darkness of something in a character's past and trying to figure out these clues and piece together this story, almost like a detective story. The house in Signs is similar to this house that you spend so much time trapped in. The village, of course, the rural nature of that is just like the rural nature of this podunk little town out in the middle of nowhere. So I did feel Shyamalan in every aspect of this movie, and it gets to theme as well. Because as we talk about the things that are sort of through lines throughout all of his work, there was early in his career as he was hugely successful and the way he was sort of known for being able to really manipulate an audience. And he really could do that. And he's doing it here, mm-hmm. too. The way he's probably the most Spielbergian, if anything, is just in his focus on family. The fact that family dynamics, family relationships, and fractured families is something he's obviously compelled to explore. But going back to what I said about storytelling a little bit and using the camera to really heighten this idea of seeing, you go back to his best film, I think most of us feel like, The Sixth Sense. This is a movie about, fundamentally, what we see and what we don't see, or, more specifically, what we choose to see and what we choose not to see. Exactly, and of course, this will come up here in a little bit, Shyamalan can't help himself, and he has to be a little too clever, and he has to name the main character Cole Seer, because, of course, he sees things that other people don't. But... The same way Shyamalan plays with the audience to an extent, too, in The Sixth Sense. There's no doubt that that gotcha twist does challenge the audience to think about everything they've seen. So there's an element to that in The Sixth Sense that we get, obviously, with The Visit as well. But I'm thinking of moments in this movie, Josh, like the camera on the girl's computer getting smudged so their mom can't see them when they're on Skype. Of course, I have the other question, which is if they can't even get a signal to call out, how can they get on Skype? You wouldn't think this house would have any kind of Ethernet connection or Wi-Fi. But my impression was it was dodgy Wi-Fi because you they, see him plugged in. To, you see him plugged in later in the yeah, film. That, that's true. So, but they also go out to like one door to get a better signal. I mean, yeah. that's how it is at my house. So okay. it made sense to me. <laughs> I'm never going back to your house. The girl's avoidance of mirrors that comes up. Even some of the insane ramblings of the grandmother and the grandfather here are about things they see that other people don't see. So 
I could give you example after example that reinforces this idea of narrative constructs and rationalizing. And there's so many elements that he felt compelled Josh to hit us over the head with, especially at the end of the film. Up to that point, though, he had really given us a movie that was subtly about something that we didn't think it was really about at all. And it's really about what we're all willing to accept, almost regardless of the explanation we get, simply because we want it so badly to be true. That notion permeates this entire film. And so that was something I really latched onto. Now, by the end of the movie, that cleverness creeps back in. He can't stop himself. Not once, not twice, not three times, but four times in the last 10 or 15 minutes, we get Moments that call back to previous moments in the film that if you were paying close attention, you probably thought, you know what? I know those are going to come back into play. It makes everything overcalculated and overblown. Yeah, calculated is the word. He will not let the audience do any work. He is going to jam it down your throat the same way the grandma does with her sugar cookies. <laughs> she loves to bake, doesn't she? She does. That's the first sign that something's really wrong. <laughs> uh, and I like the buildup, how he handles the buildup here. But. Okay, so calculated is the word, and I don't know that he's any more calculated here than he was in The Sixth Sense. I just think maybe he fooled us a little bit better there, Yeah, and that's why we regard that. It's one of the reasons we regard it as a better film. You're right. He doesn't let audiences do do the work. He does repeat things. He lays out those clues. It, too, is a puzzle piece mm-hmm. movie, and I don't know about you, but the twist worked. I'm not one of those people who goes into a movie when I know there may be a twist and tries to figure it out. Yeah. I would rather let it work on me so i'm an easy target i'm with you i'm sure people will go to this movie and within 10 minutes say i guessed it yeah congratulations it worked for me because i didn't try to figure it out and i thought it fit for what he was trying to do really well though let's say it feels more organic it doesn't feel as much like a twist as some of his other it's not like a village twist no 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 it it makes sense i mean it makes complete sense and but the clues are all there early on as well and when you go back you can see them i'm okay with that now when you say he does keep hitting things though are you talking about before the reveal or after the reveal see we can't get into it unless we were doing a little well, bit of spoiler talk. I don't want to ruin it, but you said he kept hitting things after four or five times after the reveal. After, and the okay. moments I'm speaking of, Josh, in particular, are not the clues that cue us into anything. Of course, because they're after it, we know it. What I'm thinking of are the emotional touches, the real, genuine human interactions in this film, and the themes that I was discussing, and the way the movie pays off or could pay off. Are you talking about the coda? Just has to keep pushing it. The coda is an example of that. Okay. The coda is a perfect example of something that he could have been a lot more restrained on. I don't think he needed to cut it out completely. No, I I really actually like that he went there. But he goes too far with it, just like he goes too far with every moment that comes back to pay off in terms of character development. I just wish he would have been able to hold himself back a little bit, Mm -hmm. let us do a little bit of the work, still maybe have those elements there, but he has to draw extra attention to them because he will not let you possibly miss them he's insistent on you catching how clever he is and i don't want to watch a filmmaker insisting on how clever he is, is it is it cleverness though or is it a lack of faith i don't know that this is any better is it an insistence on your cleverness or a lack of faith in the audience i think it's the uh, former I, in this case that's okay. my sense of it because but who knows the coda isn't really revealing anything in terms of cleverness the coda is more to reiterate the family related themes that my sense is he feels the audience may not have picked up on. I, I think we do. I don't think we need it hit that hard. But I am glad the coda is there. Mm-hmm. I think it ties things together well visually as well in in what we see compared to what we see at the beginning of the film. If I had a problem with the after the reveal sequence, it's that things get initially 
they get crazy funny horror loony where you're just like what is what is going on here yeah and characters you're do things laughing. that they only do in horror movies but, but up to working. that point they never seem that dumb it's that's well that's true mm-hmm. there's a decision here that's a it's generic horror decision that is you know there should not happen anymore in any horror films no but but i actually was on board with a lot of how it was being ratcheted up until it starts to get pretty vicious mm-hmm. and it starts to get pretty grisly And this is involving two kids as well. And part of me felt, is this a bit of a desperate bid for relevance? Um, Because his other films don't really have this. They creep you out. They make you unnerved. But they don't really give you that sort of shock violence that we do get here. That's something different and distinct from his other work. I don't know that it fits as well with what the rest of the movie is doing. Because it doesn't fit is precisely why I kind of liked it. I think just because it went to a place that I didn't expect it to go, and it did genuinely horrify me in a way. It put me in the position of wondering what I would do in that situation and would I behave the exact same way this character does? Would I be capable of doing that? I don't know that he's trying to provoke any of that. You may be right that it really is just a little bit of desperation on his part, but it worked. It, it worked, worked for, for me. You. Yeah. Okay. All right. Sometimes when a movie is is – Working on the level of dread, then I feel like it undercuts itself when it turns to shock. Speaking of that dread, I think, and storytelling also, the way he builds up here mm-hmm. in this film is really well handled. I mentioned how the baking, the insistence on the baking is one thing where you're like, okay, something's a little <laughs> off. Pop Pop makes those trips to the shed. Yeah, this is too and, idyllic and you with know, all the food. Yeah, yet no grandma likes to make food this much. It's, right. almost, it's, it's a tick. It's a tick. And that's and that is what we learn. Uh, Pop Pop goes to that shed and these are just little things that make you feel, okay. something's a little bit off. But what's brilliant about the screenplay and the performances, we should say Pop Pop is played by Peter McRobbie, very familiar face. Mm -hmm. And Deanna Dunnigan plays Nana, also a well-known actress from television primarily. They are so good at covering their tracks. Yeah. Because they cover their tracks for each other. So when Nana does something strange, the kids go to Pop-Pop out of concern and say, I think she's not feeling well. He has an answer. Right. And and that answer is enough for them. to buy it. At because least, they want to believe it. They want to believe and it. And he may even want to believe and it. They don't, well, that's true. And, and they don't know. We should say that they've never met these grandparents before. Mm-hmm. This is an estranged family situation, which lends to some nice thematic touches. <laughs> Though that's also one of those moments where you go, wait a second, they're going to grandma and grandpa's house and... They've never met them before. <laughs> Maybe not the best parenting decision. Mm. Adam, she wanted to go on that cruise. Right. Come on. And they wanted to let Come her on. go on the cruise. But really? Really, M. Night Shyamalan? But I do like how then the reverse happens where Pop-Up does something weird and Nana has a perfectly reasonable explanation. You know what it does? It buys us another 15 minutes of, course. of not feeling sure, but we have a little bit higher level of unease. Absolutely. And I think for me, Josh, where I come out on this is – If Shyamalan is back, or at least I should say where I'm not willing anymore after seeing this movie to completely throw in the towel on him as a filmmaker, it's not because of what he's doing with found footage or even what he's doing thematically. It's really the fact that when he's on, no matter how crazy everything is, you get moments like, and this is very early in the film, it's at the beginning when the mom, Catherine Hahn, is seeing them off. She's seeing them off. We've done this with our own kids when they get on a bus or they're going away for a little while. She's running kind of alongside the train. Yeah, I like She's making scene. funny faces. She's waving a little too emphatically. And then as they get further away, what do we see 
out of the corner of the frame, we see her then start to break down a little bit. We get those kind of human moments where he just really understands something about the human psyche and family dynamics. And there's an interrogation scene here where we get the sister asking questions of the brother. And then later the brother gets to turn the table and ask her questions. And just that camera being on them forces them to be honest in a way that they maybe haven't been up to that point. And both the performers in those scenes are really, really good and really genuine, I think. And I like those kind of just human moments, for lack of a better word. Okay, but I will say what I thought you were referencing when you said the punch him in the face reaction was the end credits sequence of Tyler, the brother, played by Ed Oxenbold. You're going to spoil this? <laughs> Doing another rap. Yeah. I mean, this is one of those, the, yeah, one of the kids' added traits. To it. That added to my wanting to punch him. One of the kids' traits, and this is where they're, I would say, very thinly developed in the screenplay, is that he envisions himself as this rapper. Mm-hmm. And since his sister always has a camera, he's performing for the camera, they're painful. You just feel bad for everyone involved, including the audience, except maybe Shyamalan, because it had to have been his idea, and he obviously thinks it's working. I, I think, you know, and we'll see this. We'll see something like this in almost every one of his films, and we certainly see it in The Happening, right? That's the the low point because it's full of these moments where someone needed to say, this does not work at all. And I don't, I don't know where that someone is, mm-hmm. but they were missing for the wrapping sequences of The Visit as well. They were, and as I was going through that litany of past movies and how there were certain moments here that reminded me of those films, this entire movie is basically that sequence in the middle of the happening where they show up at that old woman's house oh, right. and are seeking kind of refuge and it turns out she's completely off her rocker and that was horrible and that's where if you hadn't already tuned out that movie that was where you were just like okay I really can't I can't take this anymore I'm ready to walk out of the theater it wasn't even unintentionally funny in a good way right. and he found a way to take that same sort of off kilter everything here should be perfect And we really want it to be perfect, but man, is there something wrong? He found a way to develop that here. He got it right this time. Yeah, I do think he got it right this time. But you're bringing that up reminds me of one of the good jokes in this movie and one of the bits of, if not self-commentary, it seems to be a little bit of an inside joke he puts in the movie, are those scenes where two characters see the girl filming them. And of course, they both have to immediately say, you know, I was an actor once. Oh, How I many like times yeah. has Shyamalan or any other director, <laughs> if they know they're a filmmaker or they see them with a camera, they instantly turn into actors. And I do love the fact that she does what probably most directors don't ever do, which is basically tell them, okay, thanks, I've had enough. Yeah. You know, and I got to shut the camera off now. I can't take it anymore. So that was a decent laugh in this movie. A nice touch, except for one of those allows for another rap. That's a good point. The Visit is currently out in wide release. If you agree or disagree with our takes, email us at feedback at filmspotting.net. All right, we're going to keep it creepy with Massacre Theater when we come back. Then Adam will share a few thoughts on the buzzed about Indie the Mend. And we have an update on our Johnny Depp poll question. Stay with us. Don't know who I am But I got my name
Everything you wanted to know about Whitey Bulger but were afraid to ask, that's next week's show when we review Johnny Depp as Bulger in the new film Black Mass. Depp also the subject of the current film spotting poll question, which asks you, how do you like your Depp? Completely recognizable, somewhat recognizable, or unrecognizable. And based on what we can tell from the trailer, Depp's pasty white, balding, badly in need of a dentist Bulger appears to fall into the somewhat recognizable category. Of course, we didn't provide the option that at least one poll commenter was looking for, Josh, which was, I like my Johnny Depp retired. That's not nice at all. (laughs) That sentiment shared by a couple Depp-hating listeners so far. You're going to love this, though, Josh. And I want to stress, this is not a redo. We are not redoing this poll, but with the poll results so far, pretty much where Sam and I anticipated them to go. We knew it was going to go with that middle route, the theatrical Johnny, somewhat recognizable, the depth of Ed Wood and Pirates of the Caribbean. We wondered if we could get a more competitive poll out of the same data. So again, this is not an admission of failure. We're not going to speak anymore of poll redos. This is just a (laughs) spinoff poll, a spinoff poll. Are you buying, Josh? Can I just clarify? This isn't a poll question week on the show. Exactly. But we're making it one. We're making it one. So taking those same categories of depth performance, recognizable, somewhat recognizable, unrecognizable, we're taking a performance from each category to see which one wins out. So your Johnny Depp poll 2.0 question (laughs) is, his best performance is, Josh? Completely recognizable as Donnie Brasco in Donnie Brasco. Somewhat recognizable as Ed Wood and Ed Wood. This is the theatrical Johnny category from before. Unrecognizable as Edward Scissorhands in Edward Scissorhands. I think Sam's name for that was Long Gone John, which yes. I liked. And then we have other. We are giving you other in case there's another Johnny Depp performance that you just adore so much you can't live if you don't express it in this poll question. You can do that if it's not one of those three. Okay. What happens to all those other votes? Those people who agonized over which way to go, mm-hmm. registered. Mm-hmm. Are, are, so we're just declaring that theatrical Johnny won that one. Well, so far, it's looking like that's going to be the case. We'll read the results next week. But this is a redone poll. With no, it's all not a options. redo. It's not a redo. It is a wholly new poll. Okay. So the old poll. So we have poll, two poll results oh, that we'll share the next other week one on up. the show. Of okay. course. Okay. <laughs> Of so, course. So now, now we've gone to two polls a week. That's right. Okay. Now I no, got it. I got it. We spaced them out over two shows, Josh. <laughs> Why are you questioning? Just wanted to make sure I'm keeping up here. Don't question so much. <laughs> we want to know which of these performances is your favorite. Josh, now which one of these three, taking out the categories, just looking yes. at the performance, This, this makes it much easier for me. Okay. This answers my, my question. I was in a dilemma because I wanted to go with Edward Scissorhands but didn't really like the other options in the Long Gone John category. Right here, Edward Scissorhands it is. Yeah, I am going to abstain because 
You I've want never pole seen. version number three before you commit? I've never watched from start to finish Edward Scissorhands. Was well, that a part blind of the blind spot spotting conversation? Well, it couldn't That's be right. because I've, I've mentioned seen it. it. No, it wasn't part of the actual show, but I've mentioned it to you behind <gasps> so the scenes. So we can't do a sacred cow of that either. No, we can't. It'd oh. be blind spotting for me. So I can't weigh in on Edward Scissorhands and... I love him in Donnie Brasco. I think that's my favorite film of the two I've seen, so I'm inclined to go there. But Sam said something over email to me that I completely agree with that makes this poll, both polls, a little bit tougher, and that is neither of us can recall a Johnny Depp performance we've been crazy about. If I really thought about it, Hmm. I might have to go with other and say Pirates of the Caribbean because I couldn't believe, and I only like the first one. I really only like the first one. I couldn't believe that he created a character that was that over the top and mumbly and ridiculous. And yet I found him really compelling. I enjoyed every aspect of that performance. So maybe I'm going that route. I'm going back to somewhat recognizable in Pirates of the Caribbean. But I don't love Depp in any movie. Do you? You got Yes. Really? Yes. All three of these are fantastic. I mean, you guys are spending an awful lot of time on an actor you don't really care for. <laughs> maybe that's why. <laughs> We're trying <laughs> to convince ourselves that he matters, Josh. And... So far, I think we've failed. We want to know what you think. Vote now at filmspotting.net. If you leave a comment, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. Results for both poll questions. And possibly a third. (laughs) Don't press your luck. We'll be aired on next week's show. A few notes we wanted to share a little bit of housekeeping here for our Chicago area listeners. We do have tickets to give away free tickets to an advanced screening on Tuesday, September 22nd of the new film from Ramin Barani. He, of course, the director of Man Pushcart and Chop Shop. It's called 99 Homes. It stars Michael Shannon and Andrew Garfield. It opens in limited release on October 2nd. It is first come, first serve. More information at filmspotting.net. We did hear from a few listeners, Josh, who couldn't believe that we left 99 Homes and Barani off of our fall movie preview, especially when the movie stars Michael Shannon, who we both love, and I'm a fan of Barani. Something about the subject matter of 99 Homes just has me unenthused, but it's not a movie that's trying to get you excited to come to the theater. True. It's pretty serious subject matter. And I was probably unfairly unmoved by the trailer. It was it was pretty pedestrian. That doesn't really mean anything. We know that, but uh, it's maybe why it didn't make my list. Well, if you want to see that movie again in advance this coming Tuesday, the 22nd, go to filmspotting.net. You'll find a link in the top stories. We also wanted to help promote, speaking of Tuesday, September 22nd, the Slate Culture Gab Fest Live in Chicago at the Music Box Theater. So our friends, including Dana Stevens, from the Slate Culture Gab Fest are doing a live show in Chicago, and they are going to hold it at the same venue we had our 500th show. Dana was a guest on that show. She loved the Music Box so much that when they were looking for places to do a show here, she wanted to go back to the Music Box and threw that one out there, and that's where they ended up. And as of right now, I am pretty sure that tickets for the pre-show cocktail hour and... The show that follows, that's sold out, but there are still tickets remaining as of right now for the show itself. So you can't get drunk with them before they go on stage, but you can still go see the show. And if you're curious for more information about that, we'll put a link in our show notes. That should be a really good time. If there are listeners who aren't familiar with the Slate Culture Gap Fest, I encourage them to check it out. It's one of the podcasts I, I make time for, and I just love how they're, you never know what they're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. They always manage to make it a good conversation. One of my most recent favorites 
was about the new Dr. Seuss book, knew what pet should I get. And it was just a great discussion about what makes Seuss such a legend. So yeah, I'd encourage listeners to make a night of that. And they were very gracious and offered to have us be part of the show, actually, which we would have loved to do. Unfortunately, it just did not work out with our schedules. And we are really, really bummed about it. We'd love to be part of it. We're having a hard time putting out our own show that exactly. week. Exactly. <laughs> a little bit of bonus content we wanted to promote. We will have some. In the Film Spotting app this week, a little bit of listener feedback. Josh, it's A, B, or C. You can pick your poison. We have small moments in big movies feedback, haunted past movies feedback, or Desert Island Directors, the most recent top five of the three. We can get into some listener reactions and their picks for those top fives. Which one are you feeling this week? Let's do what's the oldest? Small moments. Small moments. Let's let's do there. Okay. Start catching up. We'll start at the back. You can find that in our bonus content. If you have the Film Spotting app, visit filmspotting.net and click on apps for more. One more quick note here before we go on. I don't want to call this a correction, maybe a, a clarification. <laughs> There's a lot something of disclaimers will, in this something segment Something that so will far. help us help us move ahead. It has to do with uh, the director, Denis. We won't say his last name quite yet, but he's known for prisoners. Because we're enemy. scared to. We had some, you know, some wondering about how to pronounce his last name. Well, listeners, you know, they're nothing if not helpful when it comes to pronunciation, Adam. I think or we, not. I think we've learned this. If you get too well, many options. You know, the problem is sometimes the help, they don't always reach a consensus. So, Let's look at a few of these suggestions we had probably within the last week on now, Twitter. First, though, do you want to spell the last name so people playing along idea. at home probably a good idea. know what we're talking about? Okay. And the reason I do bring this up is because, and I love this, we got a comment in the Film Spotting forum yes. telling us how to properly pronounce the name, but they misheard and thought we were trying to say the last name Villanueva, yeah. which that's the Americanized version of how to say that name. But I know that growing up watching WGN and seeing Cubs games and Hector Villanueva. Yeah. So that's not the name we were butchering. It was this. V-I-L-L-E-N-E-U-V-E. On Twitter, and here, we're, this, the fun part of this is we're probably going to butcher listeners' names as we do this. Of course. Joe Janito, that's his handle there, said, Listening to the latest episode of Film Spotting, love slash hate the butchering of Denis Blank. The first and last E's are silent, he says. So that's helpful. Still leaves a few other elements up in the air. So we'll move on. Chris Fivey said, pretty sure it's Villeneuve, lads. He spells it V-E-E-L-N-O-O-V. So a vote for Villeneuve. the long E mm. in that one. Dakota Arsenault, also on Twitter, says, this is from a Canuck, Denise. Ville like the village, Noof. And then she has rhymes with hoof. So she spells it N-U-U-V. Nuf. Hoof. Hoof. So I'm not sure if she means nuv or hoof. So that's <laughs> that's somewhat helpful. Uh-huh. Uh, here's an email from Pedro Cuedas. He's in Lisbon, Portugal. For weeks I've been cringing with the way you pronounce Denis Blank's name. I was comforted when I discovered I wasn't the only one. So let's settle this. Say it like you would say Catherine Deneuve, which I think you suggested early on. Yes. If it helps, think of it like this. He has Ville equals Will with a V. Nuv equals love with an N. So Denuv, maybe a little more. Love, yeah. I guess. Nuv. Okay. He also says, P.S., it would be nice if Josh stopped saying conversation. <laughs> conversation. Uh-huh. Th- I mean, that I say that? That's part that's of the film spotting drinking game. absurd. On the forum, <laughs> we heard sir. from XIXEVO. Uh, he provided a video link of Denis being introduced on a talk show. Yeah, George says, Strombolopoulos. Yeah, after Adam's pride at his pronunciation of Lyon, I thought he'd have a better handle on the French. You can hear blank pronounced correctly at about 27 seconds here. It's sort of like, and he spells it D-E-H slash K-N-E-E. Wow. V-E-A-L, like 
the Veal. food, and then dash N-Y-E-U-H dash V-H-H. So I appreciate the effort. I think he added a bunch I, of I syllables the effort. to his name. All right. So I actually, I got in touch with a Sicario. Denis Blank is directing Sicario. This is why this is all I saw up. that you tried this. Yeah. On the tw- official Twitter account, they didn't get back to me. No, I tried a Sicario publicist. you sounded like a crazy person. <laughs> I tried a publicist and, um, you know, she suggested some video interviews. So I did that. I found one on YouTube, Q with Gian Gomeshi, that I think might actually be it. It's not the director pronouncing his name, but it's Gomeshi pronouncing it. And it sounds very similar to what we heard from listener Aaron Teachman in Washington, D.C., who left us a voicemail. So let's listen to his interpretation. The director of Enemy, Prisoners, and the upcoming and highly anticipated Sicario is Denis Villeneuve, very much like Catherine Deneuve. So I think you were right. It sounds like, Adam, let's go with Denis Villeneuve. No. Villeneuve? No. Villeneuve? After all that, after all that, we're still wrong. Can you see why I'm confused? Denis Villeneuve. Denis Villeneuve. Villeneuve. That's what we're going with. Perfect. (laughs) And now time for some more massacring. This is Massacre Theater. We perform a scene badly. You get a chance at winning a prize. Last time we massacred this. Wine, sir. Mouton or shield, 55. May we begin? Please do. Happy selection, if I may say. I'll be the judge of that. That's rather potent. Not the cork, your aftershave. Strong enough to bury anything. But the wine is quite excellent. Although for such a grand meal, I had rather expected a claret. Of course. Unfortunately, our cellar is rather poorly stocked with clarets. Mouton Rothschild is a claret. And I've smelt that after shave before, and both times I've smelt a rat. That's Sean Connery as 007, Bruce Glover as Mr. Wint, and Putter Smith as Mr. Kidd in 1971's Diamonds Are Forever. It was written by Richard Maybaum and Tom Mankiewicz, directed by Guy Hamilton. And a little bit of random trivia there. Bruce Glover is the father of Crispin Glover, or so the internet tells us. So was he the guy there? Michael was asking about which actor he was playing. Was he the guy with the bald top and long hair he's the other guy he was the other guy okay yeah that looks more like christmas as we'll hear more about as we get into a little bit of feedback a couple weeks back the chicago tribune's michael phillips michael putter smith phillips joined us for our fall movie preview the latest bond specter was among the fall's most anticipated films at least josh for the two more discerning critics on that show yeah myself and michael but Catherine oaks in yardville new jersey also caught that Diamonds is the last Eon film where Blofeld was the antagonist prior to his rumored appearance in Spectre. So that whole thing has been swirling behind the scenes, and that was a reason why we picked Diamonds Are Forever. Mendaugas Mozuris, our buddy in Vilnius, Lithuania, says there's another tie-in, though. Michael Phillips. Yes, Michael Phillips. Choosing to massacre this scene with Michael on the show was not an accident. My guess? Adam and Josh don't know much about wine. Not necessarily a bad thing. But I can easily imagine Michael saying... This wine is quite excellent. Multiple evenings a week. <laughs> Very nice, Mendogas. Ben Hayworth in Houston, Texas said, by the way, 
I must give a compliment to the Larson School of Acting. Oh, thank you. I thought the deep Scottish brogue of Connery was impossible. Who knew all you needed to do was a Shrek impression with paper towels in your mouth? I can't. They were cotton balls, by the way. I can't wait for the upcoming bestseller, Who Needs Authenticity When You Got Charm? Josh Larson's Guide to Impractical Acting. You did get a book contract, so <laughs> that's what that's it is. It. That's it. I'll have it done in five days. All kidding aside, great tribute to one of the more ridiculous Bond films. And I am so glad that Bond is finally back to being relevant and cool. Well, at least for Michael and myself. Chris Moody in Tedbury, England. He's in England, so... He should know. He says, now that you've performed the scene without giving us your Connery impression. <laughs> Ouch. I think I speak for all of Film Spotting Nation when I say this is something we need to hear. We need to hear both of you doing Connery, like Rob Brydon and Steve Coogan in the trip. How about the sponsors' messages or donations? Please, Chris says. I like it. We'll have to work that in. <laughs> oh, that could be a train wreck. Jeff Miller from Boston said, I am such a huge Bond fan that I've seen even the lesser entries in the series, such as this one, multiple times. I don't want to be too harsh, but let's just say Josh's Connery impression was on par with the quality of the film. Gotta love Jazzman Putter Smith and Bruce Glover as hand-holding henchmen Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd. More on that. Greg Alvarez in Brooklyn, New York, a different perspective than Jeff on the film. I'm thrilled you chose this 1971 classic as your salute to Bond, having occupied the better part of my misspent adolescence watching these films on repeat. This one is still my favorite. Having seen it upwards of 50 times, I could probably quote the film from memory. The sheer ridiculousness of it, as well as the beautiful kitschiness of it, from the velour swimsuit-clad team of Bambi and Thumper, to Sausage King Jimmy Dean as Howard Hughes stand-in Willard White, to the moment in time capturing of early 70s Las Vegas, to the assassin team of Mr. Kidd and Mr. Wint, they make me want to go back for the 51st time. By the way, Mr. Kidd, played by Michael, was originally portrayed by Putter Smith, a jazz bassist by trade who I guess had the right look for the part. Sure, their portrayal as a gay couple is not particularly PC, but Kidd and Wint remain a unique and memorable part of the Bond series. It was my incessant viewing of the Bond films, which finally led me to the realization that I should also be watching other movies. So as film spotting continues to foster my love of film, it seems fitting that Diamonds was featured. Man, Greg makes that movie sound way better than it is. (laughs) Well, then it sounds like it is. That's another Bond film that I need to see, actually. Diamonds Are Forever, not one that I have experienced, Josh. That's one I've probably seen way too many times. Really? Well, it was it was just the right time. You know, that's when I was into Bond films. Well, despite your lack of a Connery impression, we got a lot of entries. Reach into the film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner. That's David Khrushchev in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Congratulations, David. Email feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your very own film spotting T-shirt. Because after Salome, we'll make another picture and another picture. You see, this is my life. It always will be. We'll see if the acting instructor is ready for his close-up with this edition of Massacre Theater. We're this not is going to be a whole chapter hints. in the book, yeah. this performance. <laughs> it could be. It's a fairly long scene, too, but I think you're ready for it. I can't wait to hear your rendition of this scene. It's from a movie I love. That's the only hint you're going to get, Film Spotting listeners, because we don't think you need any other hints. You start it off. I'm going to give you the action. Are you ready, Josh? I think I am. Okay. And action. Oh, that's nice. Look how you put the table. Now, it's that interesting? I saw it in a magazine. Oh, 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 oh my. Nice paint job. I know. That's nice. What is that? Is that the TV room? Oh, well, only temporarily. It's going to be the nursery. Oh, you're pregnant? No, not yet. I hope to be as soon as we're settled. Wonderful. You're young and healthy. You ought to have lots of children. We plan to have three. 
I'm dying to see the apartment. The woman before is a dear friend of mine. I know. Terry told me. Oh, did she? You two had some long talks together in the laundry room. Only one. Oh, oh my goodness. It looks so much brighter. What did you pay for a chair like that? Uh, oh, um, I'm not sure, really. I think about $200. And... Scene, we made it. Wow, that naif innocence, it just comes through in my performance <laughs> it's there. natural for I you. Think. <laughs> and I said you didn't need any hints. Obviously, we were doing Who Framed Roger Rabbit based on Josh's performance. <laughs> Let's just say that was my inspiration. <laughs> if you know what scene we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, September 27th. The winner will be selected randomly, randomly. from all the correct entries and announced on the show in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, oh, visit filmspotting.net. Glad you came. I've been here. I just figured you were in some anger loop for three months, just screaming at the wall. Mm-hmm. This place is cozy. Get up. White's leaving in 90 minutes. Wake up. What if they come back? The brother and his girlfriend. I don't know. I don't care. I can stay here if I want. Who would I get Ronnie? Bring him here. Bring him here? A bit of the trailer there for The Mend. This is the debut film from director John McGarry. I had all intentions of watching this over the weekend, but instead I had the Kempinara family over. That's true. And, and that pretty much we wears your house you out. Mm-hmm. I mean, you need a day of recovery after that. So <laughs> Fair unfortunately, I didn't get to it. Adam, you watched it, I think, a week or so ago. I did. So fill us in. What's it about? What would you make of it? The Mend is not our only house guest movie this week, Josh, as it turns out, going back to The Visit. It's also not our only movie, like The Visit, that is about characters with severe daddy issues. And it is a perfect companion to the movie we reviewed last week on the show, actually, Queen of Earth. In that movie, Elizabeth Moss and Catherine Waterston aren't siblings, but the wounds and intimacy they share runs deep enough that they could be sisters. And here in The Mend, we have two brothers similarly driving each other mad. They're played by Stephen Plunkett and Josh Lucas, or as I think Sam Van Hallgren referred to him in his letterbox review of The Mend, Dirty Josh Lucas. Oh, that's the best Josh Lucas. This is Dirty Josh Lucas. I don't know that we've seen him this way before, but he's quite filthy. And the two movies are also, Josh, similarly experimental with sound and editing. I like The Men more because I think writer-director John McGarry isn't as oppressively insistent on establishing mood and tension. And the movie is genuinely funny at times as opposed to being ironically or occasionally unintentionally funny. There's one extended party scene early in The Mend where I think just about any viewer will recognize very familiar types of people and conversations. And it's hilarious watching Lucas at one point fake getting a phone call when a woman he doesn't remember from a previous party starts asking him about the progress of the website she paid him $300 to build. It's, it's a funny scene, and there's a lot of nice little interactions like that, because basically he's just crashed this party. And the thing that I appreciated most about The Mend is that even 20 or 30 minutes in, I had no idea what the movie was. It seems initially like we're going to follow Lucas's character, Matt, on an after-hours-like journey through the streets of New York fueled by alcohol and drugs. He sees a party going on in an apartment and makes himself at home. And I genuinely thought he had just crashed it. Like, he saw the lights on, he saw people making noise and said, okay, I'm going to go up and see if I can blend in with this a little bit. And Only over the course of several scenes do you realize through the interpersonal dynamics at play that he is the brother of one of the characters throwing the party. And so this is a movie that 
keeps you always on guard in that way. And there was always a sense of discovery that I really liked. I enjoy seeing a director when he's on his game, like M. Night Shyamalan, who we talked about earlier, exercise a precise type of control and a real formal rigor. But I also really like seeing a director be completely unhinged and be unpredictable in the way McGarry is with the men. It's a movie I wonder if I would have appreciated more if I was more familiar with a couple of McGarry's supposed influences. I keep seeing these filmmakers' names come up in tweets and in other reviews of the movie, Arnaud de Plachin and Leos Carax. Embarrassingly, I think I've seen, between the two of them, only two movies. I've seen De Plachin's Kings and Queen and Holy Motors, of course, from Carax. And I checked my notes on Kings and Queen because it was a movie that was actually discussed here on Film Spotting. And the comparisons would certainly seem to be accurate. These are both very sort of unhinged, kind of volatile, visceral movies. I like the female characters a lot in this film. They are the types of characters you think early on are going to be completely marginalized or excluded from all the macho-ness, but actually Lucy Owen and Mickey Sumner, who we saw as the friend to Greta Gerwig and Frances Hodge. He's also in the end of the tour. She's very good. I respected more than swooned over the men, the way I know some of our colleagues have, but I do think McGarry is undoubtedly a filmmaker to keep an eye on. If you want to check out The Mend, it's currently playing in limited release and on demand. Several platforms have it, including iTunes, Vimeo, Amazon, and Vudu. And by the way, Adam, in David Gordon Green's Undertow, Josh Lucas gets a little dirty. Oh, that's right. A little bit dirty. That's right. It's Film Spotting Top 5 time. When we come back, we'll share our favorite movie house guests. Pull up a chair next to Cousin Eddie and Uncle Buck and stay with us. Off the streets again. That don't mean that I can help you, or I ain't your friend. Maybe trouble is your middle name. Trouble is that you're. So, Josh, this is actually a fairly light week for new donations, but we're going to get to them anyway, really as a ruse to get to a game that a film spotting listener sent in that I think we need to make sure we share with everybody listening out there. First, a note about our music. Yes, we are playing Keith Richards from his new album, Cross-Eyed Heart, because we can't resist a tie-in, and Keith Richards is a creepy old grandfather. Also, we've already talked about Johnny Depp, and no one but Johnny Depp would want to have a sleepover at Keith Richards' house. Of course, mimicked him. To great effect in Pirates of the Caribbean. Now, you, you have to go to one of these places. You get an invitation from Keith Richards to sleep over and an invitation from Pop Pop. Where, <laughs> I thought you were saying Johnny Depp. I'm taking Keith Richards in both cases. Okay. His new album, Richards, that is, is a comeback of sorts as well. His last solo album came out in 1992. That might make M. Night Shyamalan feel better. So, Keith Richards, our featured artist this week. Another pronunciation correction, Josh. After all that in the previous segment, I thought this one was one we had to get to, mainly because I feel really bad about it. Thomas Pashko in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, wrote in and said, The scene, Massacre Theater, almost made up for Josh's butchering the pronunciation later of Regina, Saskatchewan. The name of that city isn't pronounced like the woman's name Regina. The I is pronounced I, not E, a helpful pronunciation guide. It rhymes with vagina. Well, 
I think that that's the first time that word has been uttered me, in 10 Thomas. years on film spotting. Thanks for that helpful tip. I got it now. <laughs> I knew that, too, because of my deep knowledge of Canadian junior hockey, the Regina Pats. I surely knew it was Regina. I meant to make a note of it. I was supposed to correct you because I knew you'd get it wrong. And, of course, I just let you breeze right through it. Oh, thanks so much for your help. Sorry. And sorry, Thomas, and everyone listening in Regina. Another quick note comes to us from Billy Ray Bruton in North Hollywood. Josh, you want to read this one? Smugly. FYI, Billy Ray says, not all educational institutions are shackled to the woebegone traditions of a single solitary graduation ceremony. I grew up in the small town of Pisgah, Alabama. We had a kindergarten graduation, an elementary graduation at the end of sixth grade, a middle school graduation at the end of eighth grade, and a high school graduation. Sure, they were probably just fundraising tools to keep the football players knee-deep in jockstraps, but they were also grand excuses to get random checks from family members and free pies from neighbors. So, Josh, fret not over Adam's naivete in the realm of graduation ceremonies. You're in the majority, sir. Mm. That does seem to be the case. It's turned into quite the controversy. Us Iowans seem to actually be in the minority, but talk about coddling our kids, all those graduation ceremonies. Now, if I knew there was pie involved... That doesn't then, sound so bad. Then I feel it? like I really Sounds missed very, out on something. Very neighborly, mm-hmm. communal. But this is—I don't know what's going on in Alabama. This is—I'll even. Oh, so you're I'll drawing the line at eighth grade. This is. I think the one that really bothers me is the end of sixth grade. Yeah, that's what's that's, that, Billy Ray? That's over the line. <laughs> a couple donations here. Suzanne in Mountain View, California, a new ten dollar a month donor. Barat in Belmont, California, also a new donor, and finally. Chris Justice, he's in Washington, D.C., and apparently, despite the fact that he goes to law school, he has a little bit too much free time on his hands. Middle to new listener of the show, I began about two months ago and have since been quoting your reviews and using them as a guide for what I should watch and review at nextprojection.com, as well as annoying my girlfriend with constant quotes and references to your reviews. The other night, I got home after watching the end of the tour and listened to your review. It was almost the weekend, and I had some time and dogfish 90-minute IPAs to kill and decided I was going to make a drinking game out of listening to film spotting for my roommates and I. The rules are attached in PDF and Word format for your entertainment. I hope all's well, and I wanted you to know that your hour of podcasting helps me through the ridiculous metro commute I have into Washington, D.C. every Friday. So I did post this as a Google Doc, and I shared it on Facebook. I shared it on Twitter. But if you don't follow us on those social networks, you might want to go to filmspotting.net. I'll find room in the show notes to place a link. And I think a few of my favorites include number four, drink every time Josh says the phrase. And I think that really works here. I didn't know that was a go-to phrase for you. Is that a common one? But I believe it. It seemed right to me. Okay. It did seem right to me when I, I read it. it. Another good one, drink every time the following actors or actresses are mentioned. Jessica Chastain, Marion Cotillard, Michael Fassbender, Tom Hardy. Sure, that makes sense. That's going to get you drunk really, really quick. Number 14 is dead on, too. Drink every time Adam or Josh read a listener feedback letter that has a passive-aggressive dig at a film spotting <laughs> review, followed by a polite comment on yes. the show. always end with polite tones. That absolutely is true. And number 11, drink every time Josh audibly scoffs at something Adam mentions and Adam rolls right through it. I'm good at that. <laughs> just, I can roll right through anything. Tactic. Thank you, Chris. Again, we will post a link to the Film Spotting drinking game in our show notes. Please add to the list, as many Facebook listeners were. We don't actually encourage you. This is like jackass. We have to put out the disclaimer. We don't actually encourage you to try the Film Spotting drinking game. You will die. No, no. You will die. Yes, we need to put that out there. This could get dangerous.
Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by BuzzFeed's Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer of Screen Crush, focusing on the world of online movies. More information at filmspottingsvu.com or subscribe to the show on iTunes. Hi there, over at the Film Spotting Mothership. This is Allison Wilmore from Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit, here to invite you to join us for our latest episode in which Matt Singer and I undermine each other into nervous breakdowns all in the name of friendship as we discuss the psychological drama Queen of Earth, starring Elizabeth Moss. And inspired by Queen of Earth, we'll be recommending some other films about breakdowns all ready to rent or stream at home right now. To listen, search for us in iTunes or check us out at filmspottingsvu.com. This is Ryan Johnson, the writer and director of Brick, and you are listening to Film Spotting. This is Film Spotting with Adam and Josh. It's top five time, and this week's top five is movie house guests, a nod to the unfortunate brother and sister who find themselves crashing with their creepy grandparents in The Visit, which we reviewed earlier in the show. Before landing on house guests as a topic, we did consider a few other top five options, including movie grandparents. Thought that one had a lot of promise. It would have worked not only as a tie into the visit, but to another new film currently out there in limited release, which I do recommend, Lily Tomlin as the star of Grandma. And there are a few memorable movie grandparents. Film Spotting Advisory Board member Sarah Staggs came up with a pretty decent top four. Anyway, Josh, I mean Gene Hackman in Tenenbaums, Peter Falk in The Princess Bride, Grandpa Joe in Willy Wonka, and Grandpa in Meet Me in St. Louis. But in doing a little more digging, we found that grandparents are not really a demographic Hollywood has devoted a whole lot of time to. Late in the game, we considered maybe the most obvious top five. This is the one most listeners chimed in with, suggesting it was director comebacks. And there were some obvious ones like maybe Kubrick and Malick, who they didn't necessarily make a bunch of terrible movies between making some good ones. They just took a whole lot of time off between making great ones. You could throw someone like Altman in the mix. And we actually have done our top five directors who need a comeback. That was back in early 2013, and M. Night Shyamalan was number two on your list. So actual director comebacks? I had him comebacks? at number two. Yeah, huh? you had him at number two. All right. That's something we might get around to at some point down the line, but we're going to get into this week's top five. It is Movie House Guest. It was a suggestion courtesy of Mitch North via Twitter. Very clever name. He's at North by Mitch. Get it, Josh? Got it. Yeah. We might have a little bit of Hitchcock in this top five. Who is your number five movie house guest? Well, first, I have some criteria. Really? I played the You're Adam the one Kempenauer, with all the criteria. The Adam Kempenauer oh. part this week. Oh, it I turned out to be a rich topic, so I thought I got to narrow this down a little bit. So my house guests had to be invited. This is my vampire rule. Kind of, this cut out any like invasions, which mm-hmm. a lot of horror movies where you get, you know, an invasion of the house. I didn't want to do those. Somewhat along those lines, I decided no ghosts, no aliens. So sorry, E.T. <laughs> we'll have to get to you later. Wow. I also avoided dinner parties. Just because I thought, you know, that could be a fruitful There were so top many five. obviously good ones that you didn't want I'm to talk about? thinking about the future, Adam, when we're getting really desperate for top fives, that might be one we want to do. Okay, well, that's you've information, done it already, you know, you? you might have shared with me, so well, I could partake in that top <laughs> five later. There were, I didn't want to bother you. You were so busy with our multiple polls. How dare right, you? At number five, I have Vivian Lee as Blanche Dubois in A Streetcar Named Desire. A couple of listeners on Twitter made the suggestion, too. I think it's a really good one from the Tennessee Williams play, of course, adapted by Elia Kazan in 1951. Blanche is the sodden Southern belle who moves into the seedy New Orleans apartment of her sister Stella, played here by Kim Hunter, and brother-in-law Stanley, played, of course, by Marlon Brando in one of his legendary performances. 
In the state of Louisiana, we got here what's known as the Napoleonic Code. According to which that what belongs to the wife belongs to the husband also and vice versa. Ma, but you have an impressive judicial air. You know, if I didn't know that you was my wife's sister, I would get ideas about you. She's what? Long place to dumb, you know what. All right. Cards on the table. I know I fib a good deal. After all, a woman's charm is 50% illusion. When a thing is important, I tell the truth. And this is the truth. I never cheated my sister, or you, or anyone else on earth as long as I lived. Well, where are the papers in your trunk? Everything I own is in that trunk. Lee tries to match Brando's Titanic performance. You can see her just watching him and trying to hit that volume level. I think, except for maybe the campy crack-up at the end, she mostly manages it. They've got some fantastic scenes together. She is high-strung. Um, But she brings a real fragility to every scene as well that works. And this is even when she's supposed to be in charge. I mean, she's the disruptive force here, not Stanley necessarily. And so she has these scenes of disrupting things, but you can sense that fragility. It's, you know, when she's handing these passive-aggressive compliments to Stella or raging against Stanley's brutishness or even batting her eyes at Carl Malden as a potential suitor. So really good performance in a movie that's most thought of for a different one. Mm -hmm. But I think she works here as a movie house guest. Well, Josh, we did have similar criteria, though I didn't go with that ridiculously arbitrary no aliens. You know, I'm just a little bit... You're going with E.T.? Less prejudicial than you, apparently, (laughs) about our visitors from outer space. But I did think these house guests had to be invited or at least initially welcome guests. So... We saw people on Facebook saying, well, what about the Babadook? <laughs> or what about right. funny games? And, well, those are invasions, to use your word there. I think it was Aaron Teachman who suggested Three Iron. And I thought that was inspired. That was a film we talked about. I think it was my favorite film of our Korean auteurs mm-hmm. marathon a couple of years back. But that couple, they just go from house to house making themselves house guests when the other people aren't there. They're invaders, sort of. They are kind of invaders. So that didn't really work. I also had a rule that None of these movies could be What About Bob because I haven't seen What About Bob. Still? Still. Even after I ha- I've had it on some list. You probably have. And that have. didn't motivate you to... No, no. It certainly didn't, Josh. Hey, what am I doing Sorry. here? <laughs> and we do have some notable house guests in the film spotting pantheon. I don't know if you thought about Betty and Rita from David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. You could make a case as well for Shirley MacLaine as Fran Kublik in Billy Wilder's wonderful, The Apartment. And I'm sure there are others in the Pantheon as well. So they won't make the top five because they are put away in the Pantheon. My number five is stealing a play from the Josh Larson playbook, going animation, going Studio Ghibli, Arietti, and Sean, or show, from The Secret World of Arietti. Thought about this one. Written and supervised by the great Hayao Miyazaki, directed by Hiromasa Yonibayashi. It's a little bit of a cheat in that you could argue they aren't really welcome guests. Nobody knows they're even there initially. They're little people who live in the basement. They live in the holes and crevices of this garden home. Or is it really their house? Well, that's the argument you could make. And if you didn't buy that argument, you could also say, well, Sean, that character who befriends Arietti, he is the house guest. He's the one who comes to spend a week in the summer at his mother's childhood home, his maternal great aunt is there and the housemaid so he's a guest and he does develop a relationship with arietti who is 14 years old and like a lot of 14 year olds wants to get out from under the thumb of her parents and wants to see the world and experience things and they live by the creed that 
they should never be seen and they can't mesh with the outside world in any way. I look back at my notes on this film because we did review it on the show when it came out and a dollhouse, a very ornate dollhouse plays a major part in the plot and a lot of characters note how perfect the details are, how intricate the design is and in keeping with most Studio Ghibli films, especially films from Miyazaki, the details here are really what make this movie. The way the mom's makeshift shoes at one point, they flap like shoes do when they need to be replaced. The way they serve tea, the little people do, where it takes just one drop from the teapot to fill up their mugs. I love little touches like that. And just the whole sense of perspective, the way that dollhouse to them looks like this massive structure, but to the people who live there, it looks just like this tiny toy. So all those details add up to make this a really believable world. And I just remember how invested I was in the story because the director shows how hard this life is for these people in this environment. And that gets us caught up in their story because we recognize how hard it would be for them to just give up this home they've made and start over. Starting over isn't easy for Arietti and her parents and just the way it takes so much time in that character development and the story is something I love about the secret world of Arietti. I took my then nine, seven, and four-year-olds to it and they all loved it like I did. A top 10 film for me in 2012, so excellent pick. Let's stick with animation. At number four, I have Belle, voiced by Paige O'Hara in Disney's Beauty and the Beast. We were tossing around some options, Adam, and you expressed a little skepticism about Belle's qualifications. More of a prisoner, maybe? Is that what you were thinking? (laughs) Well, I was thinking, is she a maid? Isn't she getting paid to work there? I don't know. I haven't (laughs) seen Beauty and the Beast since 91, Josh. Okay. I I guess fair enough question. As justification, I'm just going to point to one of the more elaborate musical showstoppers in the Disney canon. Ma chère mademoiselle. It is with deepest pride and greatest pleasure that we welcome you tonight. And now, we invite you to relax, let's pull up a chair, as the dining room proudly presents your dinner. Be our guest. Be our guest. Put our service to the test. Aside from the support of Lumiere, Cogsworth, and the gang in Be Our Guest, I had to include Belle because I believe I am on record that she's my favorite Disney princess, Adam. That's right. So she had to be at number four. Okay, fair enough. For my number four, I don't think you can have a house guest list without Luis Buñuel being represented, the guy who made The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, a movie about a dinner party where none of the guests can actually eat their meal. That can't make my list because, as listeners know, it's number one on my blind spotting list. I still need to see it. I have seen The Exterminating Angel, and I considered it a movie about a dinner party where none of the guests can leave for some inexplicable reason. But I'm not going with that film, Josh. I'm going with another Buñuel movie. It's one I just discovered when I was putting together my class this past summer on Crisis of Faith movies. If you love the Polish movie from a couple years back, Ida, and we both were very big fans of that movie, and that's another film that's potentially a good candidate for this list because the main character is a house guest at one point in that movie with her aunt. Viridiana was the template for that movie. It's a film about a nun about to take her final vows. Mother Superior makes her go see her uncle, in this case, not her aunt. And she's almost tricked into staying and ultimately does end up staying. And because she feels compelled to assuage some personal guilt... She tries to atone by inviting some of the village's poor and destitute to come live on the land. Her compassion and her efforts are not met with the type of gratitude you would hope for. It's a dark comedy, as a lot of Buñuel's work is, at least the Buñuel films I've seen. And it is funny. It's very much a satire. It's taking shots at the Catholic Church, at the upper classes. 
Ultimately, though, I do think it's a movie about the folly of human nature. It's easy, I think, to call it a cynical film, but Buñuel is an equal opportunity offender. He's a Democrat when it comes to condemnation and also understanding. And there is a beggar's banquet that happens in this film that mirrors The Last Supper very emphatically. And I think that's the shot. That single shot is actually what got Buñuel in so much trouble. It ended up winning the Palme d'Or, the film did, at Cannes, but it was rejected by the Vatican and caused a lot of controversy. It actually wasn't shown in Spain until 1977 because of its controversial subject matter. But it's a really, really good film. See, and by not picking the other Buñuel films, now we can use them for our top five dinner parties list. There you go. When we get to them. Number three for me is Joseph Cotton as Uncle Charlie in Hitchcock's Shadow of a Doubt. This was the first one that came to mind as soon as we threw out this topic. Teresa Wright plays Charlie in the film, a suburban teen who's smitten with the out-of-town uncle that she's named after, Charlie. And when Uncle Charlie comes to visit, she's thrilled until she begins to suspect him of murder. Cotton is extra toothy here. I think of him grinning in a lot of his roles, but it seems to be really emphasized as Uncle Charlie. But he's actually the one in the later scenes that seems to be showing some restraint and keeping this from going in a seamy and possibly illegal direction. I mean, Wright has a real panting presence here that adds to the sort of tension, the the weird tension in this film. Uncle Charlie, I know a secret about you you don't think I know. What secret? Well, remember I said you couldn't hide anything from me because I'd find it out? Well, now I know there was something in the evening paper about you. About me in the evening paper? About you. And that's why you played that game with Ann and Roger. You didn't want us to know and you wanted to tear the paper. But now I know you might as well tell me. <laughs> well, you've got me there, Charlie. Only it wasn't about me. It was about uh, someone I used to know. It's none of your business. Uncle Charlie, you're hurting me. Oh, Charlie. Charlie, I didn't mean to hurt you. Cotton, though, he's so good. I mean, he's one of those actors that whenever he shows up on screen when I'm not expecting him, and this happens in an older movie I'm not familiar with and I'm watching for the first time, say, oh, there's Joseph Cotton. It's like I I just sit up a little bit more Mm because you know all of a sudden things are going to start getting really good. My number three is Don Logan from Sexy Beast, the Jonathan Glazer film from 2000. This is a movie about an ex-con played by Ray Winston who is trying to retire and live the good life in Spain, has this villa, has the pool, everything, until Don shows up, a character from his past, and tries to bring him back in to the heist game and make him be part of a robbery. Needless to say, he's not going to take no for an answer. And I actually caught just the beginning of this movie on TV the other night, and I got kind of hooked into watching it because you see Winston, gal, laying on a float in the pool, just relaxing, And he gets out, and I think he's having a conversation with his son. Maybe he's having a talk with someone. And then a gigantic boulder comes down and crashes into the spot in the pool where he just was. And, of course, it's not very subtle. No matter how good you've got it, how comfortable you are, there is a boulder potentially just waiting to crush you. And here, that boulder is foreshadowing the arrival of Don Logan. Friday, the Grosvenor, you'll be there. I won't. You will. I told you you do that. Don't you show me up. No, I won't be there. You will, you're Mr. Roundtree. No. Yes, Roundtree. No. Yes, Grosvenor. No, Don. Friday. I won't be there. You will. No, Don. Yes, 
Yes! 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 The beauty of Ben Kingsley's Don Logan, the horrifying beauty of him, is that he represents every bad house guest we've ever known or seen in the movies because he doesn't just subtly undermine your contentment minute by minute, day by day, week after week, wearing you out. He's explicit in his intentions. There's a great quote from the film where Gal says, this is madness. I've had enough of this crime and punishment bollocks. I'm happy here. And Don says, I won't let you be happy. Why should I? And that's maybe the only quote of Don's I can read on air (laughs) from Sexy Beast. He is just relentless. And that body language, the vocal control, the energy, the charisma of Kingsley, he turns Don Logan into a sharp knife of a man who is completely unafraid to gouge you at any moment. And I looked this up. Kingsley is no more than 5'7 or 5'8. He is minuscule next to Winston in terms of stature, Mm -hmm. but he towers over Winston and every other character in the film just because of his performance. How about a Ben Kingsley double feature of Sexy Beast and Gandhi? Just just back to back to watch (laughs) that. Wouldn't that be amazing? To see that transformation. It's it's quite a performance. My number two is Martha Marcy, May or Marlene, played by Elizabeth Olsen in Martha Marcy, May Marlene. Melissa Taminga of the Film Spotting Advisory Board suggested this one, giving me a chance to talk about Really one of the great performances from 2011. We discussed it quite a bit that year, Adam, but haven't much sense or really Elizabeth Olsen at all, as a matter of fact. Just hasn't taken that next step or gotten that next opportunity that She's I think pretty good we've been waiting for. Some pretty good movies, but really hasn't had a vehicle yet, has she? Well, Godzilla. Like I said, pretty good in a pretty good movie. <laughs> Here she is, the title character, though, this young woman who's fled an abusive commune in upstate New York, and she's struggling to assimilate into the normal world while she's temporarily staying with her older sister. I'd say they're at a lake house, and things between them are about similar to how they are between the two friends and Queen of Earth. This, though, I think a much more effective film, and one of the keys to that is both Olsen's performance, yes, but also the direction of Sean Durkin. Both together, they put us so firmly placed inside this character's head that's in an extreme state of confusion. And and think about the difficulty of that. They're trying to put us in a place we can understand that is a place of disorientation. They pull it off. A lot of this is Olsen's ability to shift effortlessly from one of MMMM's identities to another. And Durkin also has very clever use of camera focus that lets us identify with the main character, even in her extreme grogginess. Zoe, look after this girl. For once in her life, she deserves some real care. I will. She's been great. Everyone's been really great. Good. Martha. You look like a Marcy May. Marcy was my grandmother's thing. Wow. There you go. <laughs> John Hawks, very good, very scary as the mm-hmm. cult leader there in that Absolutely. film. Absolutely. My number two is a movie I haven't seen since film school. This was probably 16 or 17 years ago, and yet it was the first movie I thought of when we considered this topic. It is Teorema, the Pierre Paolo Pasolini film from 1968, Italian movie. The character is simply the visitor, and it's a good companion with the Buñuel movie I mentioned, Viridiana, where you've got Pasolini, a Catholic as well, making a movie in a heavily Catholic country, obviously Italy, and he's a highly political filmmaker. He called himself once a Catholic Marxist. And Josh, I'm going to say, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I know I haven't heard your number one pick yet, but I don't think it's very likely you have a single pick on your list or honorable mentions who sleeps with every member of the family, including 
the mother, the daughter, the son, the father, and the maid. I don't well, think they have a pet. I mean, Belle and the Beast, that's pretty out there. <laughs> Good point. Good point, Josh. He is the visitor. He's a mysterious character. He just shows up one day at this estate of this bourgeois family living in Milan and does, over the course of the film, seduce them or have relations with every single character in the movie and is just this wonderful supernatural presence. And it helps that the supernatural presence is Terrence Stamp, a young Terrence Stamp, such a good actor. He enlightens everyone just through his presence, he allows them to understand something about themselves and their place in the world, and then he removes himself from that environment, and their entire sense of self is basically shattered. So it's pretty easy to watch the film as a commentary on bourgeois life, the vacuousness of it. It takes this almost alien divine figure to shock these characters out of their consumerist complacency, and the consequences of that epiphany, once they don't have him to lean on anymore they're dire it's a fun movie in the way Pasolini's films can often be very fun and challenging he's a provocative filmmaker Teorema is a provocative film we don't have many pleasant house guests on our list do we a couple I guess but seems like we're leaning towards mm. unfortunate I'm not going to break that trend with my number one <laughs> okay I might I might hear it's also a bit of a cheat but really if Catherine Hepburn didn't have to choose between James Stewart and Cary Grant why, why should, should I I mean, that's just not fair. I'm talking about 1940s The Philadelphia Story. Hepburn plays snooty socialite Tracy Lord. She's preparing for her wedding to a businessman, played by John Howard. And butting in on this, in all the preparations at their house, the mansion really, is her ex-husband, played by Grant, and a magazine reporter, played by Stewart, who's hoping to do a story for a gossip rag. All sorts of sparks fly here, competitive and romantic between Hepburn and these two actors. But my favorite scene might be the drunken one between Grant and Stewart, in which the actors barely seem to be able to keep it together. So you get two house guests for the price of one in the Philadelphia story. Are you still in love with her? Or perhaps you consider that a very personal question. Not at all. Liz thinks you are. Liz thinks you are. But of course, women like to romanticize about things. Yes, they do, don't they? Yes, they do, don't they? I don't know. I, I can't understand how you can have been married to her and still know so little about her. Can't you? No, I can't you. <laughs> I have the hiccups. I wonder if I might have another drink. Certainly. Thank you. Two movies on your list that I badly need to revisit. Your number five, A Streetcar Named Desire, and The Philadelphia Story. My number one, this will be short and sweet, because you already talked about it. You already talked about him. He is Uncle Charlie, Joseph Cotton, in Shadow of a Doubt. I may have thought of Teo Rema and Terrence Stamp first, but my second thought was, of course, Uncle Charlie in this Hitchcock movie. And it's my number one, because I just think if I was going to tell someone to watch the definitive house guest movie the definitive movie about a character coming in and just making a mess of everything shattering illusions if you will and he certainly does that for the charlie character his namesake i think you got to go with joseph cotton he is just so much sociopathic fun and i was watching a clip on youtube today i'll link to it in our show notes that talks about uncle charlie's hands and how hitchcock really emphasizes them and it's not just him other characters as well but it's a little hint. It's a tick almost of Joseph Cotton's or the character, of course, where he can't stop himself. That urge to kill 
it comes through or it's foreshadowed in his inability to keep his hands steady. And so we always see him doing things like ripping a piece of toast in half when people are talking about something that he was involved in. So I'm with you, Josh, on that film. Shadow of Doubt, part of a Hitchcock marathon way, way back, 2006, I think, maybe maybe even 2005 here on Film Spotting because it was a Hitchcock movie that neither myself nor Sam Van Halgren at the time had seen. And yeah, it was one of my favorites of the marathon. It, yeah, and it's not one of those whenever, well, I don't know that they do these uh, when I was a kid and they would do retrospectives on like Channel 9 or something, they'd have Hitchcock Week. I don't recall that one ever coming up. It hmm. just isn't doesn't didn't seem to get as much play as his other ones. But when I finally saw it too, yeah, it's it's a chiller. What about some honorable mentions? I have one regret I want to throw out there because some listeners suggested I've been meaning for a while to see The Guest, which I think is just from last year. Joel Copling on Twitter promoted this. It stars Dan Stevens, who I know from Downton Abbey, as a somewhat disturbing, I've surmised, house guest. The honorable mentions I thought about, Jim in Truffaut's Jules and Jim, Martin Teller at the Film Spotting Advisory Board suggested that one. James Franco's house guests, and this is the end. One of my top (laughs) 10 films of that year, but... Didn't put it on this list. How about the guests who come to listen to the house concerts in Sachajit Ray's The Music Room? Yeah. They probably, not a huge role. They don't feature too prominently there. Animal Crackers, that's Captain Jeffrey Spaulding's house party, but I don't know if I have the right to pick a Marx Brothers movie. I don't know if I've earned no. that. They're the schoolgirls in Haosu. Edward Scissorhands, speaking of all the depth conversation. What about Bob? Adam, you've got to see What About Bob. I do, really? You do. Very good. Very funny. Rules of the game. If I were to choose one guest from that, it would probably be the tragic comic Octave, who's played by director Jean Renoir. Yeah. Rules of the game is one I definitely considered as well. I'm going to cheat a little bit here, but Josh will be proud of me. I just saved this for honorable mentions. I wasn't going to lead with this, but in looking over a bunch of candidates, and the FAB was a huge, huge help, and Twitter and Facebook were as well. There were so many good candidates that instead of coming up with a whole bunch of arbitrary restrictions like you did, uh-huh. I just decided to set aside a whole top five. It's my E.T. Memorial penalty box top five. These five movies have been talked about so much and praised so much by me over the years here on the show that they just really didn't need a whole top five devoted to them. But I'm going to mention them because they're really good. Johnny, David Thewlis in Mike Lee's Naked, John Book, Harrison Ford in Witness, Joe Buck, John Voight in Midnight Cowboy, Joe Gillis, of course, William Holden in Sunset Boulevard, and Lewin Davis, the ultimate house guest. That's all he does is sleep on your couch. That's true. In the Coen Brothers inside Lewin Davis. Those were the five I immediately went to, but man, I've talked about these movies a lot, especially recently inside Lewin Davis. So I set them apart. Now, wait a minute. Is this a new category I need to keep track of? A Mm. memorial penalty box. I know we have memorial lists. I'm creating We have a penalty box. I'm creating This is emerging. Okay. (laughs) I did think about the Iron Giant. I ruled him out because I don't think he ever steps foot in the house. I think he just sleeps in the the barn. Is he an alien? Where does well, he come from? Well, he probably from? is, but that doesn't bother me, Josh. Okay. I like the Iron Giant just fine anyway. The rules of the game, the aforementioned, the exterminating angel. Screen Sonnets pointed out on Twitter that you could argue Joaquin Phoenix in The Master. Freddie mm-hmm. Quell is a house guest. I didn't know how accurate that was. I'd have to rewatch the movie. And from a recent film, Ava, Mia Wasikowska in Only Lovers Left Alive. She's a vampire, and she shows up to see her sister, Tilda Swinton, and chaos and hilarity 
and Sue. She's very good in that Jim Jarmusch film. Those are our top five movie house guests. Please send your picks or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744, or find us on Twitter at Filmspotting. That's Adam. I'm at Larson on Film. We're also at Facebook.com slash Filmspotting. Over at Filmspotting.net, you can find 10 years plus of reviews, marathons, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. Also at Filmspotting.net, take a moment and vote in the current Film spotting poll. Vote in it while you Johnny can. Depp polls. <laughs> Out in limited release. About Ray, Elle Fanning in the transgender drama with Naomi Watts and Susan Sarandon. Coming home, the latest from Zhang Yi Mu with Gong Li. Pawn Sacrifice. Toby Maguire as Bobby Fischer with Aliyev Schreiber. I recommend Pawn Sacrifice. Sleeping with Other People. The best rom-com in forever, according to Person We Trust, David Ehrlich. And how about this? Sean Gilman, the dean of the Film Spotting Forum a member of the Film Spotting Advisory Board, he liked it even more than David Ehrlich did. Based on the preview, I never would have guessed anybody I trust would love this movie. But there you go. Alison Brie as the serial cheater and Jason Sudeikis as the good-natured womanizer. It's from The Bachelorette director Leslie Headland. Time Out of Mind, the latest from writer-director Oren Moverman, who did The Messenger and Rampart. It stars Richard Gere as a homeless man trying to reconnect with his estranged daughter. And I did see at least one tweet from someone I trust, I believe Alan Churstel from The Village Voice, who said, it's really good. So there you go. It's also available via video on demand. Out in wide release, a cast of dozens brave an Everest-sized green screen in Everest. Maze Runner, The Scorch Trials, and Black Mass, the new film with Depp from Crazy Heart and Out of the Furnace director Scott Cooper. Next week on the show, we are going to talk about Black Mass and... The top five is a little bit up for grabs. We had a few different ideas we were kicking around, maybe something about corruption or corrupt politicians. One I threw out that I do kind of like is the idea of neighborhood movies, movies that you can really identify to a certain location and they have their own kind of set of rules. So I haven't researched We might have to limit it only one Boston neighborhood movie. It seems to me a lot of them are set in Boston, right? There you go. I'm good with that restriction, Josh. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. The music this week comes from the weird grandpa we wouldn't want to visit, Keith Richards. It's from his new album, Cross-Eyed Hearts. You can find more information at keithrichards.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. It's funny because we actually did have a house guest <laughs> experience this weekend. <laughs> I thought about that. <laughs> Thank you for that, by the way. It that went, was fun. Yeah, it was fun. We it went better time. than the visit. Uh, yes, a little bit. You didn't, only because you didn't find my diaper pile. I didn't find your diaper pile or go into the basement. We do have a shed. Oh, what's in the shed? I want to know. You've always seemed a little too perfect, Josh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just stay out of the shed. Testing one, two, three. Mic check one, two, three. Testing the mic. A clip there from The Visit, the new one from M. Night Shyamalan, a director badly in need of a it's comeback. It's Shyamalan. 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 Yep. <clears throat> Which you maybe check Forvo, but I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Let's not even get into that.